If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the 12 Hike Podcast, where we don't care what you do, as long as it's outdoors. I'm Zach Jenkins. Thanks for listening. Turkey season here in Colorado starts in just a few days, and after swearing them off for years, I've convinced myself to go ahead and give them another crack, and I got my turkey tag, and I'm going to try to shoot a turkey this year, against my better judgment, might I add. And that kind of sparked an idea, why don't I dedicate the whole month of April to turkeys? As much as I hate them, I love them. They're an elusive bird, they're tricky to figure out, they're beautiful to look at, And I thought I'd want to talk to some people that may know a lot more than me about turkey. And we're going to start off the month by talking to Pete from the National Wild Turkey Federation. Pete was nice enough to spend a little bit of time giving me some background on the organization, some of the conservation efforts they're involved in, and why turkeys mean so much to them. If you want to find more information about them, you can go to nwtf.org, become a member, donate. They do a lot of other things too. They do... uh, annual meetups, giveaways, and there are chapters in almost every state. So it's a pretty good organization to get involved in. Go ahead and get your background a little bit if we want to knock that out of the way real quick. Sure. Uh, In our our discussions, you mentioned that you used to live in Colorado and you moved. Where did you grow up? So actually, uh, I grew up on the East Coast, uh, born and raised in Delaware. Uh, Decided I wanted to get out and see something new. Um, As soon as I was old enough to leave town, Moved, uh, lived in North Carolina for a while, went to college there, got my degree in journalism, communications, um, headed west after that and uh, lived in Wyoming for a short time, spent some time uh, in Casper, Wyoming, uh, and then lived in Lafayette, Colorado for a while before taking my position with the National Wild Turkey Federation and and uh, getting into the conservation world. So. Okay. What'd you think about Wyoming? We almost moved there. You know, um, uh, I really love the Rocky Mountain region as a whole, but I think if I could go back to any of the places that I've lived, I would probably end up back in Casper. Um, I mean, gold medal trout streams, uh, short distance from public land hunting for mule deer, antelope. Uh, um, I mean, elk hunting in your backyard right up there on Casper Mountain. I, I loved every bit of it. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've lived some neat little places before and, uh, Wyoming was one of those places where I would easily pack up on a Friday after work and go drive six hours just to fly fish for a weekend and, you know, just so many uh, undiscovered outdoor places to be. So I I really enjoyed it. It's wild. I know I'm only an hour south of uh, Cheyenne 
And once you cross the border from Colorado to Wyoming, things really change. It's different. Yeah, they do. Uh, they do. And, and it's weird. That wind just seems to pop up out of nowhere. <laughs> no <laughs> that, doubt. It lets me know exactly that you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, it's brutal. Uh, obviously, you're uh, in with the National Wild Turkey Federation now. Have you always been a, a hunter and outdoorsman? You know, I, I did grow up in the hunting outdoor space a little bit. Um, always, always grew up camping, uh, but mostly before moving to Wyoming, it was small game or um, doing youth hunts for pheasant, things like that. My dad kind of gave up big game hunting as, as the family was growing up, um, but got into it a little bit after college. And But it was really hitting those that wide open spaces of Wyoming that, that kind of brought me back to the fold. So. I've never been a big game hunter uh, like you, small game. I grew up in Ohio, in the Ohio River Valley. So we were always big on squirrel and the occasional grouse, if you could find one. And once I moved out here, uh, taking on big game is, is very interesting. It's it's a fun, fun activity, but it's also brutal. It's hard. Oh, it really is. Um I think that that's probably the reason that you get so few tags out West is because they know that the time that you're going to put into it and the, the painstaking efforts, it's not like it is back East where there's, you know, fields of, you know, 50 deer that will fill up uh, on, on a single sit from a tree stand. It's a totally different ball game, but, um, but, you know, regardless of what it is that you're doing, it's still an opportunity to get outdoors and, uh, and, and that's, I think the the main thing behind it is it's, it's that time spent, you know, interacting with the animals, seeing nature. And, and that's really why I think a lot of us do it to begin with. Oh, for sure. And even though they're the abundance of wildlife is, is pretty high out East. I've seen more deer and Turkey this past year here in Colorado than I ever have in Ohio. Oh, wow. Maybe it's a symptom of, I just got out more. Could, uh, could be. They do. They do have some really good uh, Miriam's populations in the mountains there in Colorado. And then, fair amount of rios which are another subspecies of birds that run up in a lot of those creek basins bottoms um as you start heading out into the plains and uh, out towards like nebraska for instance yeah that's something i didn't even realize that there were different subspecies of of turkey <laughs> and i've got a couple of uh i guess cpw and uh, ohio division of natural resource specialists coming on in the next few weeks to probably dive into that a little deeper oh cool um, but uh, yeah, to, to realize that there are different subsets of turkey is, is very odd. I'm going to go ahead and uh, I haven't <laughs> mentioned my love-hate relationship with turkey for a while, so I'm going to go and do it again. Uh, <laughs> we used to hunt turkey through high school every year, and uh, I really got soured on them because uh, twice a year, we'd, we'd always hunt spring and fall, mm-hmm. and for a solid week, we would drag ourselves out of bed, miss a morning of school, and, you know, we'd call turkeys in and they would just, they'd hit that wall, they'd stop. And after a while we'd stand up and there they'd go running up the hill. And I, I, I wrote them off, completely wrote them off. I, I hate turkey, but I got out here and I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it another shot and I'll be damned if the same thing didn't happen. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not very good. I'm not a good turkey hunter. Turkey hunting to me is one of those things that's uh, you love it. Like if you get into it, you're all in. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that, uh, you know, 
from working with the National Wild Turkey Federation, your your turkey hunters really are some of the most dedicated hunters that are out there. And and they're you're you're right, they're in it. Um, you know, they hunt them in the spring, and then while there's even while there's other seasons going on in the fall, a lot of them are still chasing turkeys again if if given the opportunity. Um, I, I was similar with turkeys. Um, I actually never really chased them on the East Coast, but it was because everybody told me how terrible it was. They said you. You know, in North Carolina, when I lived there, they, they were like, oh, you go sit in a swamp and you deal with mosquitoes nonstop and there's just not very many of them. And it's not really fun. But it was the the Miriam's turkeys, which are one of the more vocal turkeys uh, of the subspecies. And in my opinion, one of the most beautiful ones. But those birds in Wyoming, Colorado, uh, I mean, they uh, they they talk a lot for the most part they're a whole lot easier to deal with than those eastern turkeys which you find pretty much everywhere on that mississippi corridor and to the east uh, so like what you were chasing back home in ohio those are just stubborn birds that's what i found since moving here to south carolina i have started to hate turkey hunting again so. <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I don't know what it is uh, to me it's turkey are an anomaly they're an odd animal because you know, they're, they're a bird that humps rubber dummies on the regular, but they can be so smart. They can outsmart the best hunters. And I don't know if it's just chance or they're actually smart. You know, I, I, I've, I've spent time thinking about this and, and actually had so, the, the joy of talking to some, you know, some of the top turkey biologists. And, and I think really what it comes down to is that it's, it, it has a little bit to do with smarts, but it's also, when you understand how hard it is for a turkey to make it from being um, a poult or, you know, even starting at that egg stage and getting to adulthood. I mean, it's, it's a, they are against all odds with predators and weather conditions and everything. I think it's nothing more than they just are one of the most wary creatures out there and they have incredible hearing and incredible sight to where it's, it really isn't smarts. They're just trying to get away from anything that that seems out of the norm to them because they know that they're constantly under attack. But there are those times when they just decide that, you know, hey, there's that rubber decoy over there. And, uh, you know, it's that time of year and I'm, I'm going to go and, and flog that thing. I'm going to jump on top of it. I'm going to do whatever I can because it's it's springtime. So, <laughs> yeah. in, in your research and in your time with NWTF, have you figured out kind of some of the triggers that send a, a male turkey, a tom, into that stage of like, okay, I am chasing hens no matter what? Um, as far as the research, you know, I'd, I'd have to defer to some of the guys that, that are uh, wildlife biologists by trade. Um, but from my understanding, you know, there obviously is that certain set time of year where it's the division of your flocks, you know, you're separating out of your, your male birds, they start establishing that pecking order. And it's just all a part of that, that breeding cycle. But it's, it's similar to some of the stuff that you see from my understanding to, to deer, where, you know, it may not seem as evident, but pretty much it takes place at a certain time every single year. It's just that other circumstances around them, whether it be predators or hunting interactions or other things that may, um, that may end up determining how much of the gobbling activity that you get that normally pairs with that breeding uh, that you, that you end up seeing up front. But just like uh, other species, you do have, um, at least when it comes to the mating, the, the mating season, it's you have your first round where they're trying to, uh, you know, breed hens. And, and then if those nests fail, then those hens may become able to be bred again. And there's that second nesting season. So 
but I mean, basically here, here in South Carolina, um, I think that they see, I want to say it's as early as, uh, um, March is when some of it starts. And that's why even some of the seasons they're talking about trying to push them back a little bit. Um, but a, a great guy to listen to, um, who actually does some great posts on a weekly basis. His name's Mike Chamberlain. Um, he's a turkey researcher and professor at University of Georgia, but he's constantly posting great tidbits, facts of information when it comes to turkeys. I think the one today was actually about the hearing hearing capabilities of turkeys. Fantastic guy, too. I was trying to think if he was one of the guys that was on the Meat Eater podcast because they had, they've had a couple that, of turkey guys on there. That is, uh, that is Mike Chamberlain who did uh, the Meat Eater podcast and – um, talk. I, I can't remember who else that they've had, but yeah, he was definitely on there one time. I love, I love listening to those guys talk about Turkey cause they love them. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, I, it's, it was funny. I remember this was a number of years back, obviously, but, uh, where Steven Ranella took Joe Rogan on a Turkey hunt in California. And it was just kind of like one of those ho-hum things. And, you know, you could tell it's like, man, you know, I'm like, I'm a diehard Turkey hunter. Why don't these guys see it? But it goes back to that, like, you either love it or you don't, you know, it's there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of in between. Yeah. Especially out here in the, uh, in the Rockies, a lot of people draw parallels between turkey hunting and chasing elk mm-hmm. uh, just because the Merriams, I didn't know this either. You know, they're, they move so much and, you know, they change the locations pretty frequently. And then also the interaction with calling, you know, trying to chase them down, call them in. Um, they, they say that it's pretty similar to chasing elk. Yeah, that, you know, I'd say that that the the terrain that you're in, um, because you can find your your turkeys in the Rockies, even up at snow line sometimes, which is a, a neat thing if you ever see a you know a big old strutter come, you know, fan spread, wingtips dragging, you know, through snow lines. That's always kind of a fun thing to see. Um, but the interaction for the calling is kind of a neat thing. But it seems to be for some of the folks that I've known that live out that way, um, because in a lot of those states you can hunt them in both the spring. Um, and the fall, it's, it's an opportunity species. It's, you know, during, not, not in Colorado, but, but in Wyoming or Montana, for instance, if you're chasing bear in the spring, people are tossing, uh, you know, a turkey tag in their pocket, uh, just in case they, they get a chance to see one in the fall. If you're chasing elk, you're chasing mule deer, you're in that higher country. Um, you know, if you throw a turkey tag in your pocket and one comes along, uh, you may snag one, but, um, but getting a chance to do both, there, there's a, there's actually a lot of similarities even in the calling to where, you know, the guys that I learned to turkey from in Wyoming, they they told me to start off. It was an old Carlton's double uh, elk call, which is what I was trying to call turkeys with on, at the very onset of, uh, of, of getting to hunt them to, to begin with in the Black Hills. So um, they're, they're definitely closely related. We're, I know we're kind of <laughs> deviating pretty far away from NWTF territory. Yeah. Uh, talking tactics and whatnot. So let's kind of steer it back toward NWTF. Sure. Um, how long you been with the, how long you been with them? I've been with the organization about seven years now. Um, came in uh, trying to help out on the communication side and, and still work um, uh, now overseeing a lot of the digital efforts that we have, um, whether it be our social media website um, and uh, email communications, a lot of things in that regard, just to try to, strengthen the efforts of what we're doing to put out the good work that's happening across the country. And do you know some of the history behind NWTF when it started and why? Yes. So, so actually it was back in 1973. Um, the, uh, the founding father, uh, his name was Tom Rogers. He, it was something where 
you know, it was there are there already were some organizations that were um, that had been started for a lot of other species. But it was something where turkey hunting was something that was near and dear to his heart. And so they basically, uh, you know, him him keeping track of records. Uh, I want to say it was in his, in an old cigar box. That was, you know, kind of how they started things and actually started in Roanoke, Virginia or around that area keeping track of member records and everything, but it was recruited. The organization was recruited down here to South Carolina um, during a turkey calling competition um, that was held here. And he sat down with the the locals and they, they said, Hey, we'd, we'd love to have you relocate down here. So that that's kind of the onset, but it was, it was really something that was put in place to try to help further the efforts that were going on already at the state levels, but to try to help be, uh, an organization that would help facilitate better communications between the states and try to help, uh, again, you know, fulfill that mission of res- restoration of the wild turkey. Um, and then also that back end side of it, which was to, um, you know, preserve uh, the hunting heritage, which is something that, again, is kind of important because we know that as conservationists and hunters, that those two things go hand in hand. You can't have conservation without hunting. You can't have hunting without conservation. And there's a reason that um, that we consider ourselves conservationists. It's, a, it's because if if you don't do anything, things kind of go haywire. So hunting is an integral role of conservation, and that's why hunters have put forth all the dollars to to try to help make sure that that uh, wildlife management is something that that kind of comes to the forefront. You see, even outside of things like turkey. Um, you know, it's those organizations where people take a, a special interest in, um, those are the ones that, that have really ended up, uh, benefiting from all the, the conservation efforts that, that go on. Yeah. Places like what backcountry hunters and anglers, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, those, those guys are really mainstreamed getting the conservation efforts out in your face. I feel like it has anyway. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's a whole host of them, um, I mean, there's a there's a lot of good groups doing a lot of good things. Um, I think one unique thing about the NWTF, and I kind of alluded to it a little bit, is there was already work going on, you know, within states to try to manage their own populations. But one of the things that we actually did, and and I, and I can't remember how old the technical committee is, but but we established what was called the technical committee, and this was a uh, a collaborative effort to where people from all the different state wildlife agencies were involved to try to help share best practices on turkeys. And, and again, NWTF stepped in. And if it was, you know, this particular state over here um, had a shortage of turkeys and was working on their restoration efforts, we helped step in and, and take care of all the transportation fees, relocation costs, um, you know, disease testing of any of the turkeys and help facilitate those re uh, or the restoration efforts early on. Now, very little of that still goes on today as far as the restoration efforts. Um, there's still some happening. I believe uh, birds were just recently sent from Missouri down to Texas, um, where we're still working to try to help with restoration efforts for the eastern subspecies in that far east corner of Texas. But um, majority of what happens now is habitat work uh, that's going on across the country. And depending on where you are, the needs are different. Colorado, um, for instance, uh, we actually have engaged with U.S. Forest Service and, and a conglomerate of almost, I want to say it's like 90 partners now, that, uh, or if even not more than that, um, in a project called the Rocky Mountain Restoration Initiative. And I want to say by the time that it's all said and done, it'll be uh, around the neighborhood of like 400,000 acres 
uh, that'll be impacted as far as um, habitat restoration, reduction of, uh, you know, fuel in, in the forests, um, try to cut down on those large scale burning, uh, focus on water quality. So, I mean, not stuff that you normally think of when you're like, man, these are turkey guys, but it all helps go back and, and benefit the wild turkey in general. It's, you know, all those things that are helping to produce uh, recreational opportunities, you know, clean water, clean air, um, and, uh, and helping to preserve, you know, economies in small, small communities. So whenever NWTF was first, I guess, organized, what were Turkey populations doing uh, across the United States? Were they trending down, trending up? So I, I want to say, you know, I, obviously because efforts were happening and, and one of the biggest swings before even, uh, National Wild Turkey Federation came along was, was a change in tactics. I mean, turkey populations as a whole in the the early 1900s were only in the realm of, let's say, 200,000 across the entire country. Um, and those are just rough estimates. Uh, at the time that the National Wild Turkey Federation came along um, in the early 1970s, you were looking, I want to say it was like either 1.3 million or 1.5 million. And then by uh, like the early 2000s, we were hitting a high of nearly 7 million. Now, birds today are sitting back at about, let's say, like 6.25 million or right around that 6 million mark. Um, just because all, all states do their, their, uh, their population estimations uh, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all, all these are rough estimates. But, I mean, no, it, there really was a, an explosion of the population. And um, it's regarded by many in the conservation world as being one of the most successful ever seen, just when you look at the sheer lows of what they hit and where they stand today. Um, but the NWTF doesn't take credit for it all. I mean, again, it's a work by federal agencies, state agencies, boots on the ground, volunteers um, that all came together with an idea that I don't care whether I have birds in my own backyard, it's the greater good of the entire species is really what we're going for. And, and again, I think that that's a mindset of, of conservationists in general. It's, you know, Hey, even if we have to take a couple from over here where I normally see a lot of turkeys, I'm okay with giving them to other places because we know that that that'll help them out. Turkey is an interesting animal to focus on. Uh, I don't think of it as like a, a charismatic bird, like the Rocky mountain elk foundation everyone sees an elk and they're like in awe of this wonderful creature. But Turkey kind of falls in that category of, Oh, it's a bird butterball. You know, yeah. Yeah. What, I would agree with you. what was the, uh, I guess whenever the founding fathers kind of got together of, of NWTF, why did they think the Turkey was important? So w- one of the neat things about the Turkey is that it's, um, it, it's an American species. Um, so you, you have things like the elk, which have, you know, relatives uh, on, on other continents, whether it be stag, things that look similar. Uh, I mean, there's there's lots of ungulates that, that have branched antlers, um, lots of places to find deer. But when you talk about turkeys, it's an American species or a North American species by and large. Um, obviously, they've been transplanted to other places across the world now, and you can find them in New Zealand and some other continents as well. Um, and the domesticated version of it now obviously is table fare, no matter where you go, but the bird itself, uh, that species is the North American wild Turkey. 
um, and then it has those subspecies underneath it. So I think that it's 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 more more similar to to even like your American bison. Obviously, not on the same scale scale wise, you know, ton right. versus. But it, but as far as it being an American, a strictly American thing, I, I think that that's part of the importance behind it. It's uh, it's something that was was more than worth um, putting in the effort for to to try to do what they could to to save the species. Yeah, you mentioned the domesticated birds. I actually had someone ask me um, if if you would know anything about whether Merriam's have began crossbreeding with domestic birds. Have you heard anything about that? That I do not know. Um, you know, I, I've heard some people say, obviously, with early restoration efforts that, that tried to happen, where they tried to to to, to bring birds in, uh, domesticate them, then release them back into the wild. That just it really failed. But I think because of where where gene pools have been transplanted from one place to the other. Um, I, I want to say that I once heard somebody tell me that there's probably a lot of cross pollination in subspecies to where, you know, you may have some Easterns mixed with Rios that are mis- mixed with Miriams that more that versus domestication or domesticated birds being interbreeded. Now, again, I think if you go back to, to overall lineage, you probably find some common point, but how far back that goes, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to give an educated guess on that. Sure. And I mean, obviously that's not the NWTF focus. Now, I mean, you said conservation is is where it's at. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have uh, got that whole organization. There's actually a wild Turkey Federation um, that, or not, sorry, not wild Turkey Federation. There's a national Turkey Federation. They're the ones that actually pardon the Turkey every year with the president. So um, so they, they, they deal solely in the domestic bird, uh, the domestic variation. So. Whenever NWTF, I guess, is asked to come in and kind of consult or help with the restoration of an area, let's take the most recent one you mentioned with Colorado. Um, what are the are there any specific things that you guys come in and look at in an area and go, okay, we need to have this, this, and this happen, and then that turkey habitat will be good to go. You mentioned uh, the clean air and clean water and stuff like that, but what are some yeah. of the specific things? You, you know, so. Uh, uh, as far as habitat that's that's more suitable for turkeys, um, obviously we're looking for conditions that um, may assist, uh, especially if there's population declines. It, it may be that we're looking for things that assist with um, nesting and brood habitat. And normally in your older forests that have far less undergrowth, those are things that um, that that don't very or that don't provide you know, very good habitat for those turkeys. You know, when you, when you do have young poults, they need places to hide. They need places to, to, to get food a lot more easily. Um, but a lot of the times, um, the way that the projects start out, um, and, and some of the information on this can be found at nwtf.org. Um, but the projects start out based on areas that we've identified already through something that we've kind of dubbed America's big six of wildlife conservation. And we've identified regions that we believe to be most imperiled and worth pouring more of our efforts into to try to help conserve or uh, enhance the habitats in those regions first. And, and it may be that we come in and we look and we say, all right, well, we know that habitat that's suitable for Turkey, but also for quail um, and other species 
um, needs to be restored through the removal of invasive species. Um, you know, whether it be, you know, in that uh, Great Plains corridor um, along your water corridors, things like that. So we're going after Russian olives. Uh, we're going after salt cedars, um, things like those. Or in the West, if it's areas that just have a lot of uh, fuel that's on the ground or, or timber that from beetle kill, whatever it might be, it might be going through and doing some burning that help bring up new growth uh, in that forest floor and help provide uh, food source for the birds or things like that. And, and again, it, it helps a whole host of, of other species just beyond the wild turkey. But there are things that we do try to use. Um, lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That turkey kind of is our, our point that brings us back to, all right, We if we know that it's going to be good for Turkey. It's going to help a lot of other things, but are there turkeys here in this area um, that, that can benefit from this? So, you know, us, us going and working in the middle of Alaska, even though there's conservation work that might need to be done there because we have a duty to our mission to try to help focus on things that are beneficial to the wild Turkey. You know, again, it's, we, we have to find areas that, that really do showcase that species. Yeah, and most recently here in Colorado, we had two really big wildfires uh, Cameron Peak, and I can't remember the one that was on the west side of the mountain, but they burned hundreds of thousands of acres. They were the second, first and second largest wildfires, I think, in Colorado history. How long does it take a, a place to rebound from, from a fire of that magnitude? Oh, um, I, I wish I could provide a, a solid uh, answer as far as uh, something like that goes. Again, you know, with my, my background not being on that, that wildlife biologist side, um, I do know that places that, that I used to spend a fair amount of time um, in the West, you know, once you saw an area that was hit by the fire um, and you would start to see that new growth, you would actually start seeing turkeys and other species start using almost immediately because you start to get that green growth that pops right back up through the forest floor, even, you know, while there's still, you know, black charred um, hillsides and trees. Um, but as far as overall ability for that, that place to grow back up after a massive large scale wildfire, I mean, obviously that's a lot different than taking a small scale place and burning out the undergrowth that doesn't take out all the trees on, on the landscape as well. So, you know, there's a difference between a, a, um, you know, like a prescribed burn or doing something that's more beneficial for the habitat than having something like those massive wildfires that do end up hitting an entire uh, mountain range or even, you know, front front slopes, things like that. And it, and it does take a fair amount of time uh, for the landscape to return, if at all, um, because, 
you know, again, if you're taking out the entire mountain, then you do have other things that, that happen um, with the loss of that old growth that would still be there. And as, as far as uh, I guess we'll call it hunter outreach, uh, have, has there been, I guess, an increase in turkey hunting popularity with the increase of population? So, uh, you know, I, I would say turkey hunters had actually stayed fairly level in it. And honestly, even this is through some of the research that we've done ourselves, um, but the hunting population as a whole, you know, it's becoming a smaller percentage of the U.S. population, but relatively the number of people that hunt kind of stays in that same range. I think one of the last uh, censuses they they found it, or one of the last surveys that they did, it was, let's say, in the range of, of about 11 million. I think previous years it was in the range of about 16 million. But again, with determination of license sales and whether people are hunting multiple states, you know, it's it's one of those things, there's, I guess, that there's your, your margin of error. But um, but turkey hunters r- really make up, let's say, about 2.5 million. But overall, um, kind of an interesting thing is that hunting as a as an entire pursuit saw a huge rebound uh, this past year, not because of anything else other than people were stuck at home due to COVID and needing things to do. I mean, the entire outdoor, you know, recreation genre in general. I think saw an uptick with more people hitting trailheads, more people hitting lakes, more people getting out as a way to, to, to try to, you know, escape the the craziness of the pandemic. So, uh, I mean, there were places across the country this past year that as far as Turkey hunting harvests, uh, they were up as much as let's say 40% just because that many more people were, were out hunting turkeys. Um, So I think that, you know, that has been good for the overall hunting movement. Now I think that wildlife agencies across the country with a massive, you know, increase of scale as far as people participating, that's something where they'll then need to take a look at, or, you know, they may end up taking a look at adjustments that are needed, you know, for population health. And again, that's, that's a nice thing about the way that um, hunting in general and that conservation side all plays hand in hand is that it's literally against the law for wildlife agencies to um, allow for the harvest of so many animals that it would lead to, you know, an immediate ex- extinction of an animal. I mean, they, they are legally bound to, to take care of those species. So the United States has a great system set up for that. Uh, I've heard people talk about the way we run our hunting regs versus other countries. And it seems like ours is, is pretty good. It's pretty efficient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always things that that could probably be done better. And honestly, I'm not saying anything is done poorly, but you know, there's always ways to improve on it. But that, that, again, I think that just goes to uh, speaks to the way that 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 North American model of wildlife conservation, you know, that it's, you know, wildlife doesn't belong to any one person. It belongs to everybody as a whole. And, and you do what you can to protect those wildlife resources. I mean, I think that's a, it's a very, it's a very important thing um, that, you know, that, that we've been able to establish here. And, and again, that goes back to those early conservation leaders. Yeah, we, uh, me and my guests across the spectrum, we always talk about making sure that the next generation coming up is going to have interests in the outdoors. Uh, what does NWTF do as far as outreach for, for youth and, and mentoring? Do you guys do anything like that? Absolutely. So um, we, we do have a, uh, a youth program. It's called our Jake's program. 
It's actually an acronym for Juniors Acquiring Knowledge, Ethics, and Sportsmanship. Um, and events that we host for them could be anything from, uh, you know, just a larger scale or before COVID, it was a larger scale event. You'd come out, maybe you'd get a chance to, to do some fishing in a small pond. You may get to shoot some archery equipment. You may get to shoot um, BB guns, things like that. But one of the things that we're really trying to do beyond those is extend opportunities to 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 different groups of people and and i say that by you know the the method that we used to use is well heck you bring bring as many kids out to one of these events as possible and you run through it but really if there's no buy-in from the parents to continue that effort even if that kid goes home and is like man i really enjoyed that i want to go fishing i want to do all these other things if you don't prepare the parents to to help that child be able to continue the pursuit or give them further opportunities to to lead the kid through then you're not really making a good effort on on actually creating a hunter. It's there's movement of far more pieces than just getting a kid excited to to come out once a year to those events. Now it may make a difference long down the line, but we 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 continue to do those events because you know it they're they're still events that allow us to have touch points with families in general to to try to get them outdoors. But we're, we've even been testing some things out over the past couple of years, and again this past year was tough where we're bringing out entire families as a whole and leading them through the entire process of learning to turkey hunt then later in the year, learning to dove hunt and later in the year, learning to deer hunt and also bringing them in with a group of three or four families to where not only are they getting a chance to learn to do it as a, as a family group, but they're also now being introduced to other people that they can continue that pursuit with. So we're building a, a collaborative cohort of sorts where, they now have that support group to ask other questions. We're trying to prepare them for, you know, a whole host of hunting opportunities to where they can pick and choose what they like um, and decide, you know, hey, maybe this deer thing's for me. Maybe this turkey thing's for me. I, I'm not very good at dove hunting. It took me a whole box of shells to shoot one. I don't think I want to do that again. I mean, <laughs> um, but it's taking families, um, also taking members of military who already have the firearm safety background. And maybe they used to hunt at some point, but they they haven't done it in a long time. But reintroducing them and again, doing that as an entire group of people that they may be familiar with or people that have shared similar experiences, life experiences. And same thing with college kids. If we're able to bring in college kids that they're they're nearing the end of their college journey, they're going to be going out on their own. They're going to be now making their own dime. Um, they, they will now have the ability to purchase their own hunting licenses uh, and spend their own time in the woods. Whereas when they're in college, there's there's still a lot of other things that are pulling at their time. But it's it's that idea that if we build an entire or an, uh, a small community of people that that have shared in, uh, interests and similar backgrounds, we have the ability to actually turn them into hunters in the long run. So does that community building aspect increase the likelihood of people continuing the tradition of hunting? Yes, I, I really do think that it does. And if you look at, there's, there's some people far smarter than I am uh, that have, have built something called the, uh, I want to say it's called the hunter recruitment model. And basically, you know, it starts with you bringing up the idea to somebody, them going and trying it, but it's that repetition is really what, what creates a, a hunter. And it's not just, again, what they learn is it's not just that one event of even taking somebody on a hunt, a mentored hunt where they may go out with somebody and they may shoot a turkey. It's not that one event that creates a hunter. It's instilling that confidence in them 
or the ability for them to have people around them that can help them feel more confident going out into the public woods on their own, you know, being more knowledgeable of what to do, even should they be able to harvest something, um, you know, so, so again, it's, it's a full learning about the species, introducing them to other people that want to do the same thing or are interested in the same thing, taking them all out on a hunt together, even then teaching them what to do. And that's one of my favorite parts of those classes uh, is teaching them what to do, teaching them how to cook, uh, you know, wild turkey, if they are able to get something, teaching them how to shoot or teach them how to um, teach them how to prepare deer, dove, whatever it may be. Um, but that does help build far more confidence in the back end on the entire group to where they're all able to go out on their own, much more equipped uh, to, to be able to make those pursuits. Yeah, and teaching all those skills is, is vital. I, I grew up with a grandpa that, that taught me all those skills and I take for granted sometimes that people don't necessarily just know what to do with an animal after they harvest it. Uh, <laughs> and it's, that's the total truth. You know, uh, I, I remember actually, uh, yeah, I, I had lived out West for a number of years and I even brought my brother, younger brother of mine out to, to hunt antelope with me and took him out. He hunted and, and was able to, uh, to shoot his first antelope. Um, we, went through the whole process and I taught him how to field dress it and taught him how to break it down and everything like that. And then still, when we went back out and I said, all right, well, here's your turn to go ahead and do it. He was like, I need you to show me again on some of these parts. Cause I just don't remember it. So I, I think that just goes to speak that, you know, even somebody that's done it before and been raised in a family, they, unless you do it a, a little bit, you, it, you're, you're not going to be as comfortable. So it, every little bit helps. Um, and so, again, I think that's why putting somebody through a journey over the course of a year and they're able to participate in as many of those those touch points as possible over a year, it really does make a difference. You so know, along with teaching them the actual hunting skills, does NWTF go through any of the conservation efforts? Like do they, do they teach a, a new, let's say, turkey hunter, for example, what are some things they can do to help improve their turkey habitat or make sure it stays the same quality? Yes. So uh, on the front end, we, we do basically it's just a species as a whole introduction class. Um, and we talk about, you know, all the different subspecies. We talk about where they're found. We talk about the types of habitat that they like, types of places to find them. Um, there are they probably don't go as much into those classes uh, on the conservation aspect, um, but they do talk about um, those types of things on other things that we're trying to, to, to launch out across the country. And these are more called landowner workshops. Um, you invite a bunch of private landowners that, that do have larger scale properties that they're able to impact you and you invite them all out to, let's say a singular property and you show them, the types of things that they can do. You show them sample habitats that are that are good for uh, particular species, uh, and we're able to engage with them on those levels to uh, to because they have that easier avenue on actually being able to impact the land uh, for the keystone species like the wild turkey. Do you find that landowners, by and large, are pretty open to uh, I guess conservation efforts? and then allowing hunters to get on their property. From, from my experience back in Ohio, there's a lot of private farmland, and it's really hard to get someone to open up and let you go hunt there. You know, I, I think that um, from a standpoint of, from a standpoint of 
will people allow others to come and hunt on their property? That's that's always a, a tough thing to crack. And, and I don't know if that's more because you have the liability issues of it being on your land. But when it comes to um, people being open to learn about the conservation, things that they can do on their own property to see more wild turkey, more deer, uh, hear more whistles of quail, you know, whatever it might be in that regard. Um, landowners are actually very willing because they learn that there may not be a ton of things that they need to do. You know, a lot of the times it's small things that they can do over the course of time. And there's actually resources out there that, that are for them that can help them with the funding to get some of those projects done. We actually have a whole team of uh, staff here that does help work with um, NRCS natural resource conservation service. Um, it's a good, it's a government agency within, I want to say it's uh, the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and and they help write up, uh, you know, private land grants. But, you know, when you go back to just the hunting aspect, I think um, there there is the the aspect of, you know, if if there's already hunters in the family, obviously it's tougher to to get access because they maybe they're saving it for their own kids, their own grandkids and that experience. If it's something where they weren't raised uh, on hunting, but they just have access to land or they, they own some land. It's that unfamiliarity and maybe the, uh, you know, that hesitation because they they misunderstand what it means to actually be a true hunter. Um, I think that's something that, you know, the entire industry as a whole um, can help move that needle in the right direction by helping to prop up those people that are doing it right. I mean, far too often, obviously, we read stories in the hunting world uh, about the people that are doing it wrong and the people that are breaking the laws, but it's the, the people that are doing it right and all the organizations, the great organizations out there, whether it's Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, uh, was it National Deer Association or quality, I, I forget their new name, Rocky Mountain Elk, Mule Deer. I mean, uh, all across the country, there's a whole host of them um, that are they're putting in those efforts. And there, there's tons of landowners that are out there ready and willing to help out those organizations because they know that the people that they're putting through, they have great mentors on their side. They take safety at the highest priority. Um, but when you're out on your own, obviously it can be a lot tougher. Um, and you know, it's, it would, it would be, it would be great if it was, everybody was <laughs> willing to help out. Uh, but it's, you know, it, it's, that's, that's the next, that's the next thing we got to figure out after we figure out how to properly convey hunting to the masses. Has there ever been a more negative stereotype of a hunter than Elmer Fudd? I mean, <laughs> that's so much damage done to us as a brand. Yeah. Guns blazing everywhere you go. <laughs> uh, you've mentioned a couple of other bird species in this conversation. Does NWTF get into pheasant and quail rehabilitation any? Um, so the, the, the neat thing about turkeys is again, um, habitat that's good for turkeys really is, good for a whole host of other species. So while we won't ever go into a property and go, Hey, let's start making this better quail habitat. If we go in there and we're doing restoration efforts and many times we're partnering with groups like quail unlimited quail forever. It's we we're partnering with them because the same work that we plan to do is the same work that they would do to bring back quail um, or, or to, to try to help impact that landscape in a beneficial manner for their species. So while we always go in for a focus of turkey, we know that it'll help others, just like they know that if they go in and try to help for their species, um, it would benefit a whole host of others. Ne other neat things is, you know, obviously 
you know, you hear Turkey Federation, you think, man, just hunters, you know, just turkeys and maybe even other game species benefit from it. But, um, you know, all across the landscape, the work that we're doing, whether it be, uh, you know, red cockaded woodpeckers, gopher tortoise, uh, songbirds, butterflies. I mean, there's there's a whole host of other species that are either, you know, um, you know, threatened, whatever it may be, that benefit from the work that we're able to do and carry out across the landscape to where it's not just hunters that are benefiting from it. It's like like maybe perceived to be. It's not like we're just taking care of the turkey because we want there to be more turkeys. It's we're taking care of the entire landscape. If it means that there's more turkeys, then great. But it's we're we're trying to make sure that there's wild places for everybody to enjoy for generations to come. And for me, that's the beauty of being outdoors. I know my spring turkey season, I saw a, a few uh, turkey out and about, but my like my most precious moment was I got to see a blue grouse. And he was actually, uh, he was in his mating stage. He was drumming and puffing up. And I've never seen one do that before. My only experience with a grouse is I almost stepped on one and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, that's something that you'll never forget the first time that you have a, one of those uh, blue grouse go busting out uh, in front of you as you're hiking through the hills and you have no idea it's coming. Um, I about dropped my gun. I was scared to death. <laughs> I don't I didn't know what was happening. I mean, they call them a, well, the grouse I stepped on was in Ohio, but uh, I mean, my grandpa called him a helicopter chicken because oh. those sons of guns, when they take off, they just, they're loud. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I've got a, I've got a viewer uh, question here. Uh, we've mentioned a lot of other organizations. What are, what are some of the, the other key organizations that kind of dovetail with NWTF that you would recommend a person following and paying attention to if they're interested in, in Turkey? Oh, um, you mentioned in NTF, the National Turkey Federation. Is that right? Yeah. So National Turkey Federation, I just mentioned mainly because they, they may know some of the history of uh, domestication versus wild birds and when, you know, when those splits happen. Uh, but as far as uh, anything outside of that, they are strictly a poultry industry. Uh, oh, okay. And so there's no, there's no overlap um, as far as uh, work that's being done. Um, I, I'd say, you know, it, it's kind of regionally based again, you know, if you're in areas that, that have higher concentrations of, um, of pheasants, obviously you're going to see a lot of that work overlap with pheasants forever. Same thing with quail forever. Um, we do partner in the West with, uh, again, Mule Deer Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. They're actually both, I believe, a part of that larger scale effort there in, in Colorado, that Rocky Mountain Restoration Initiative, which I believe the website for that is restoringtherockies.org. Um, it can be found there. Okay. Um, but, you, you know, honestly, I, I think that if you if you if you do even like the most basic research for you know wherever you live you can find organizations everywhere from the local level smaller groups all the way up to the national groups that are making an impact uh in your area and i'd say they're all worth supporting you know as as best as you can i mean i remember when i lived out west um on a, on an annual basis i would go to everything from like the walleye association banquet which was a fun one with deep fried walleye nonstop for an evening um to mule deer, horrendous <laughs> to mule deer um elk foundation uh turkey federation ducks on i mean there was a whole host of them um 
obviously because of um, because of you know the different species and their locations, you know it's it's hard for me to find a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation banquet back here. Um, but there's there's groups that that operate you know right here in South Carolina and and but but I think if you if you look at those organizations and you find out what's important to you in your region or even at that larger landscape level like Colorado as a whole for instance or the Rockies you can find those organizations that are making an impact and do what you can to help out all right uh getting a hold of nwtf your website is nwtf.org that is correct nwtf.org we're also on um uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. You can find us on all those and we try to keep everybody up to date. Actually kind of a, an interesting thing um, that I'll just share out is normally this time of year um, for for a lot of the, the outdoor community, there's a whole host of expos that would be going on. I mean, normally I remember when I lived out West, you know, you had the ISE and then you had the Western Sporting Expo. And if you were in the Pacific Northwest, you had the Northwest Sporting Expo. Turkey guys had we had our turkey convention, uh, you know, convention sports show in Nashville. You had the Harrisburg show. A lot of those things I, I, I don't think are going on. I know ours isn't, but um, people looking for an interesting way to get involved and learn more about the NWTF and things that we have going on. Our virtual convention is actually next week, uh, starting February 15th to the 21st. You can tune in. Members get in free if you want to tune in for the whole week. It's only $35, and we give you a membership to the organization. Um, but you get a chance to uh, see a lot of on-demand content, chance to access some great outdoor vendors that are having show specials. Uh, we're using the same platform that Sheep Show did, uh, and they found it to be pretty effective. Just a, a neat way to log in and and uh, and interact as best as we can under or under current conditions. Um, but I'd encourage people to check that out. That's just convention.nwtf.org, or you can go to nwtf.org and find more information there. And obviously, one way to support NWTF is to become a member. What are some other ways that people can can help prolong NWTF and, and keep the movement going? You know, it's I'd say, uh, again, you know, I don't want to say just give your money to the NWTF. I'd say nonprofits in the conservation world as a whole right now are are, are kind of hurt. You know, I, I, the ideal model or the way that, that we used to do business uh, or the way that we used to collect a lot of our funds for carrying out the great conservation work was those in-person banquets that everybody would go to. You'd see those those other outdoor enthusiasts. You'd bid on some cool outdoor gear. Um, but those just really aren't happening uh, for a lot of the organizations. And so um, if you have a little bit of extra money and you're able to, to pitch in on donations for any of them or you take part in a raffle at a chance to take home something cool outdoor for your outdoor pursuits, Little things like that for any of the outdoor groups is really beneficial in this time because, again, there's a lot of great groups out there doing a lot of great work, but they're hurting just like everybody else. So, I mean, it, it's a tough time for everybody, but even just outside of that, it's, you know, being aware of the species and, and sharing, continuing the good word of what hunters are doing, truly doing, not just the perception of what we're doing, I think is just a great way for us to, as a, an entire outdoor community, um, help help spread that, that proper image. Shattering those misconceptions, I think, is a, a critical step. Um, just because we're not all bloodthirsty savages that want to go out, like you said, guns blazing. Uh, That's right. I passed up three deer this year just because it wasn't ideal situations. I was afraid of wounding it. So I, I ate a mule deer tag. 
Yeah. But I didn't hurt an animal. That's right. You know, and and again, I, I think I think if people truly understood how much we cared about the wildlife resources, that, that they'd see things differently. So again, you know, even if you don't have anything to give and you can't support, you know, we hope you can support it sometime later down the line. But the best thing that you can do is continue to to share that great message of, of what outdoorsmen and women are doing and and uh, and talking more about the conservation side and, and carrying on that message. Pete, I think I've taken up enough of your time. I, I appreciate you sitting down and talking to me about this Rob. majestic American bird. <laughs> <laughs> ugly, ugly, but majestic and, and an absolute joy to hear gobble on the roost, man. So I appreciate you having me on and I uh, hope you have yourself a good rest of a uh, good rest of the day and a great turkey season. With any luck, I'll be posting a, a picture of a dead Tom. We'll see. Sounds good, man. Thank <laughs> All right. Thanks, Pete. All right. Bye. Bye. I hope you learned a little bit about turkey. Uh, They're a cool bird, and we're going to learn a lot more about them uh, in the next few weeks. If you want to find out more about us, go to Facebook and follow us on 12 Hike. Uh, We're also on Instagram, 12 Hike Challenge. You can find us on YouTube, 12 Hike. And if you want a hat, t-shirt, something like that, you can go to 12hikemerch.com.